I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This is part three in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark, and today we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. And as you look at the baptism of Jesus, you can't help but go, why? Like, why is Jesus getting baptized? Like, I know why I need it. Why is Jesus being baptized? And this actually was the controversy that they were trying to explain to us in the New Testament as well. So we're going to ask that question, look at why, and we're going to be looking at in this just few verses, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, just just a few verses long, but it's profoundly important for theology. That's what we're going to be looking at today, some sort of deep theology in the Gospel of Mark related to Jesus and his baptism. So first thing we'll do is we'll just read through it. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, just going to read these three verses. I just want you to try to just store it in your brain. As as many details as you can get out of these verses, we'll go over them multiple times today. We'll start with just a straight read through. Here we go. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. So let me give you some big picture stuff about these verses that we just read. Big picture stuff. This is, remember, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Mark chapter 1. It's the beginning. We're still at the beginning, the introduction to the message of Jesus. Last week, we saw the importance of uh, the coming of Jesus being announced by John the Baptist. That was really important. And that it was also announced by the law and the prophets, right? That it's not just John, but it's the law and the prophets. Both of those things are telling us that, this, that Jesus is the coming one. So God had prepared a forerunner, uh, the forerunner of the Old Testament, as well as John the Baptist. These are two different things. They evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, and they prepare people by saying, repent, repent. That really popular preaching topic in America today. (laughs) Repent, but that is the message. That's how we are prepared to receive Christ, is to realize, "I, I am a sinner. I do need grace. I do need forgiveness, and that means I have this issue of repentance, confession, that sort of thing. So this week, though, we're, we're seeing the handoff from John's ministry to Jesus' ministry. Um, we're seeing the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and it starts with some very specific things. Jesus' public ministry, it starts right here in these verses. It starts not with him preaching, not even with him teaching. That's interesting to me, right? Jesus starts his public ministry not with preaching or teaching. It starts with his baptism. It starts with the Spirit descending upon him. It starts with an audible declaration from the Father that Jesus is his beloved Son. And then, I need to add this even though we won't cover it this week, it starts with the temptation of Jesus. So these four things happen before Jesus starts his preaching. All right, this, is, this is in preparation for that, that, uh, that preaching and teaching. It doesn't begin with Jesus preaching. So that's why we need to start here and give it some thought. Like, why is this the groundwork for the ministry of Christ? The main point, I think, before I get into a bunch of details, the main point of verses 9 through 11, this is the handoff from John the Baptist to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Here's the handoff. The baton has been handed to him. In fact, he was like the, forgive me here if you don't like Lord of the Rings, but he was like the steward of Gondor awaiting the arrival of the king, right? I am but a steward. If you guys are like Lord of the Rings geeks at all, you know the steward had this lower throne that sat down at the base of the massive throne that belonged to the king. And it, was, it remained empty. 
And the steward had to sit in this sort of paltry throne. If you ever, when you see the movie again for the eighth time, you're going to be like, oh, I catch it now, Mike. At any rate, my analogy aside, um, that is the handoff. It's like, it's, John's like, hey, he is greater than me. I, wanna, I, I need to give this to him because it's been his all along. And I was only sent here to prepare you for Christ. And that is, of course, the message of the Old Testament as well. So John 1.31, this is where John says, uh, John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So John's saying, the main goal of my ministry was to manifest Christ to Israel. I baptized in water because of him. This great call to repentance, right leading up to the footsteps of Christ showing up. So not only John, but the law and the prophets as well, they are the same thing. They're they're handing off to Jesus. That's the idea. Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. He comes and says, Moses spoke of me. If you believe him, you believe me. This This is a huge, massive handoff. God has spent hundreds and thousands of years preparing mankind for the coming of Jesus. And John the Baptist, at the baptism, hands it off. There he is. Here he is. Listen to him. This is powerful stuff. Remember in uh, John 5, we, we went into this last time, two, two weeks ago, I guess it was, not last week. Um, in John 5, we, we showed that Jesus offered three specific evidences to prove who he was and to get people to believe him. And he said, John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophecy, and the miracles that I perform, especially leading up to his resurrection as like the ultimate thing. And we can actually offer those same evidences today, interestingly enough. Um, God's really smart like that. <laughs> We don't need something new so much as to, to newly understand what is old. So Jesus, he's, the handoff is there. Jesus is the unique son of God. And there we are. Let's start again. That's the big, big picture stuff. Let's start in verse 9 now and do a little more thoughtful <clears throat> verse-by-verse study. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, the question's just immediately, Why? Let's answer that now. Why? Why, Jesus? Why are you getting baptized? It seems counterintuitive. It seems like I wouldn't expect him to. I would think he wouldn't be baptized. He'd be like the only one that wouldn't be baptized because he doesn't need it, right? Well, turn to Matthew 3.13 for a little bit of an explanation. Actually, Jesus' explanation for why he's going to get baptized. As you're on your way there to Matthew 3.13, here's the question I have, and I, I will ask for you to answer if some of you can think of it. Why did other people go to John to be baptized? What was the reason? Repentance, and then that they would have forgiveness. So they would go to John, baptize me. I'm repenting of my sin. That's what I'm doing on my part, right? And I'm being forgiven. So that's why when Jesus shows up, it's like, this is like the opposite of what you'd expect. Jesus doesn't need to repent, and he doesn't need to be forgiven. So what about Jesus? Why does Jesus go to John to be baptized? Well, it's not for the same reason as the other people. Matthew 3.13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it at this time, for for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. He kind of tells John, you need to allow this to happen. And then he tells him the the goal. It's not repentance. Jesus doesn't say, permit it to be so because I need to repent. That would be, we would consider that blasphemous to say that God needs to repent of something in the sense of repentance of sin. Um, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was 
tempted in all ways as we are, except without sin. There's, there's no sin, of course, in Christ. There's you know, plenty of scripture to support that. So uh, one way to explain this is we could look at the comparison between the Pharisees and Jesus. See, the Pharisees generally did not receive baptism by John, and the reason is because they were not repentant. Right? They were unrepentant. So he's not going to baptize them. They don't want to submit themselves. You see, as much as everybody was doing it, it seemed like the spiritual thing to do. The Pharisees coming to John in front of everybody would look like a bunch, a bunch of sinners. If they go into the water before John, like, whoa, the Pharisee over there, he, he got baptized. So he's repenting, right? So it was this pride, this, I don't need that. I don't need that. Jesus, on the other hand, when he sees John, John has trouble with the idea of baptizing Jesus for a different reason. Not because he's unrepentant, but because he doesn't need to repent. Because John looks at him and says, you're better than me. <laughs> you should baptize me. He sees himself as unworthy and in need. He needs Jesus. So Jesus didn't do it for repentance, but according again to Matthew 3, verses 14 and 15, he did it to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? And this, I puzzle on this, right? How does Jesus being baptized, baptized, fulfill righteousness? What exactly is going on here? Well, the word fulfill here seems to perhaps be being used in a similar way as it is when Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill the law and the prophets. There's something that he's accomplishing, that he's giving the meaning and the full sense to when he comes and he does this thing. So how so? How is it that Jesus fully accomplishes this, this baptism thing when he goes and he gets baptized? Well, turn to Romans 6. We'll go to a couple more scriptures. Romans 6, and then we'll go back to Mark briefly. Um, <clears throat> to look at the meaning behind this. And I think if we consider what baptism means, then we can understand why Jesus did it and how it fulfills righteousness. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. This is where we get a theological description of the meaning behind the symbolism of baptism, water baptism. It says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? The, the int baptized into his death. So you go into the water, that symbolizes the death of Christ. Therefore, verse 4, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so I see the going under the water as the dying with Christ positionally. I, I'm dead in Christ, right? But then I am risen up into newness of life, that I might now walk in the Spirit, that I might now live for God, that I've left the old life behind. So I haven't just repented, I've come into a new like salvation position with God. That's the idea. That's the symbolism behind baptism. It's the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's what the water is all about. So we think of the cleansing thing, how water washes, water makes you clean. But what is it that actually is cleansing you? It's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ that you're identifying with. Now turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 37. I'll, I'll give you a second to get over there. Sometimes I do and sometimes I forget. Mark chapter 10, 37. So we think of that, the meaning of baptism is all about what Jesus does at the end of his earthly ministry, death, burial, resurrection, where he accomplishes our salvation, pays for our sin, rises from the dead. Then in Mark 10.37, we get Jesus referring to baptism again, and now he's not talking about the water, he's talking about the death, burial, resurrection. 
Matthew 10, Mark 10, 37, he says, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Now this is James and John, right? The two brothers. And they're like, we, we want to be in the high position right next to you, Jesus. One on your right, one on your left. In your glory. Now Jesus takes this as a request, his immediate glorification, which according to John 17, he's looking at his death on the cross as part of his act of glorification. So he responds to them and says, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's his baptism? Death, burial, resurrection. So from the so here we are in Mark still, where baptism is symbolized as the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, right? And then he's doing it with John. He's giving, in other words, at the beginning of his ministry, he's stepping into the symbolism of his own atoning death and victorious resurrection because he comes to fulfill the meaning of baptism. In fact, to give it meaning. Your baptism matters because Jesus fulfilled it and accomplished it on the cross. Baptism is in Christ. It's about Christ. What it symbolizes is only effective because Christ lived perfectly, died in our place, and then rose again. So here we have Jesus fulfilling righteousness because he's going to give the meaning to the symbolism of baptism, and he's coming to do it for us. And I think that that's the, the best answer that I can think of for how this fulfills all righteousness because it symbolizes his death, burial, resurrection, not just uh, actions that he's doing at the moment. Um, so, yeah. And what's interesting about it, too, is it's like, it's almost, it, it is a demonstration of the humility of Christ. Right? And, and John recognizes this. I sh- you should baptize me, and you're, I'm baptizing you. He's coming down lowly. He's laying aside his glory. You know, he's, he's going to be submitting himself to a cross. And so it, it shows the humility of Christ. And that's what he has to do to fulfill all righteousness, to basically give you righteousness and give me righteousness through what he does on the cross. So let's talk about the second thing we get in Mark chapter 1. After the water baptism, we get the spirit descending upon him. That's a really interesting um, passage, and it's really unique. Um, When you look at the context of Mark, John is baptizing people, but even with repentance, this doesn't lead to them receiving the Holy Spirit, right? All the other people John baptizes, they don't want to have the Holy Spirit descending upon them. This is unique about Jesus, and that's the idea here. Jesus' baptism is totally different than everybody else John baptized. It's different in its purpose, it's different in what it accomplishes, and it's different here in that the Holy Spirit comes upon him, descends upon him. John even indicates this is something his baptism can't do. In Mark 1.8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, because John couldn't do it for them. Well, Jesus shows up and he receives the Holy Spirit. This isn't the work of John. This is a revelation of something about Jesus. Right? He's greater and what he will accomplish is greater. After the death and resurrection, Jesus does give us the Holy Spirit, though. In Acts 1, verses 4 through 5, I'll read this to you. It says, gathering them together, Jesus speaking, uh, or speaking of Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so that baptism of the Holy Spirit would come subsequent, like after the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus is is receiving the Holy Spirit because he will be the one who's also going to give the Holy Spirit to us. But again, Jesus receives the Spirit with no need for repentance, no, no need for any sacrifice for his sin because he is perfect. So he's the worthy one. He comes from the beginning 
I will, I will accomplish what you cannot accomplish. I will put the meaning into this, this repentance and forgiveness, as we remember from John's baptism. It's like he's offering forgiveness, but there's no apparent sacrifice. And Jesus, he's going to come and he's a lamb of God. I, I think there's just layers and depth of meaning. I think this is where I think people who, who do it like, they like writing and they like storytelling and they like seeing like literary genius that as you read the scriptures, you're like, whoa, it just becomes so three-dimensional when you see all these different elements in it. So Jesus, he receives the spirit, unlike anyone John baptized, and he does it like it's just his due to receive the Holy Spirit. Like he's, he's just worthy, and I think that's the point. He is simply worthy. It's coupled with the approval of God, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It's coupled with his identity as the son of God, as we read in Mark 1. And it's coupled with the fact that he didn't need to repent after about 30 years of life without sin. I only made it to about 20 <laughs> seconds. Like, I'm like yeah, <laughs> not very long, I'm sure. Um, so Jesus is worthy. That, I think, is the point. That's what you can get. When you see him being baptized, he's, he's, he's worthy enough to baptize John, but not the other way around. He receives the Holy Spirit. God speaks of him. He is worthy. He gets baptized so that your baptism will mean something. He receives the Holy Spirit so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus goes in our place as the worthy one so that we, the unworthy ones, can receive what he has earned because he did it for us. Jesus in our place. That's what we see right here in the beginning of the gospel. We see him in our place. But this is not just a private thing. It's a public thing. It's not like Jesus had to, to have all this happen just for him. It was for our benefit to see it happen, to experience it in this sense. So John 1, verse 32 and 30, through 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. So we're speaking about the glory, the exaltation of Christ, um, which only gets amplified even more when we get to the next moment in the baptism of Jesus. In verse 11, it says, and a voice came out of the heavens you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. You're my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, at this point, I want to uh, give, have a little theological moment. Actually, everything's been theological so far, so we'll just continue. But this is about an ancient heresy called adoptionism. Has anybody heard of that before, adoptionism? Um, the idea is, simply put, that Jesus was a normal man who became God's son at some later point in his life, either at his baptism or at his resurrection, or perhaps at some other point. Um, but those are the two popular ones. Now, it's not a popular heresy. It's, it's an ancient heresy. It was never super popular, not really, maybe like a couple hundred years ago. Um, but uh, I think they, you know, putting leeches all over your body was really popular then too. So I'm not really sure how much that means. But, um, <clears throat> but anyways, adoptionism, though, is something that um, Bart Ehrman, who is just you know, writes endless books attacking Christianity. Uh, Bart Ehrman, he thinks that Mark is teaching adoptionism here in the baptism of Jesus. And when God speaks and says, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased, that, he, that that's when he's becoming the son of God. Let me read to you what Bart Ehrman wrote in his book. He says, this voice does not appear to be stating a pre-existing fact. It appears to be making a declaration it is at this time that Jesus becomes the Son of God for Mark's gospel. 
Now, if you guys are with me in the Evidence for the Bible series, I did a little moment where we talked about how very wrongly, terribly, Bart Ehrman misinterprets the Bible. I mean, painfully bad. All you, you don't need a degree in anything to see it. You just need to read the, the Bible, and you can see right through it. Well, that's certainly the case here as well. In his book, he actually doesn't even offer support for this conclusion. He doesn't even explain it beyond that. It's just a statement. In Mark 1.11, Jesus becomes the Son of God. There's adoptionism. I just see this as a thinly veiled attempt to try to undermine the clear teaching of Scripture. And because, if, if, especially if you hear your college professor saying this, and he's like the smartest guy you ever knew, and he says it, but I'm going to give you several reasons why this is not the case. <clears throat> First, when we evaluate chapter 1, verse 11, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased, the verbiage does not suggest becoming. You are. It doesn't say you are now. As of now, you are. You have become. It doesn't say any of those things. It just says you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. We don't have any indication that he was not something and then became something. That's not the case. So no, in the verse itself, it doesn't seem to support Bart Ehrman's conclusion. Um, there's one book he references in a footnote. He references, that's all he does is put a footnote to like 20 pages of some other book, which I did look up. Um, and that book makes the mistake of what a lot of scholars have done uh, in the past is they, they think that Mark is a Greek work, a Roman work, I should say. It's written in Greek, but they think it's a Roman work primarily when it's primarily Jewish. I mean, it introduces the Messiah in John the Baptist, and it quotes the Old Testament. This is, this is a, not a Roman work, and so it, it causes them to reinterpret words out of their Jewish context, which is a really big thing that they did a few hundred years ago. Turns out scholars were actually often just anti-Semitic. And so they would interpret the New Testament as though it was this Roman work um, and not see that it's, it's incredibly Jewish. And you won't understand it properly without that Jewish context. So um, anyways, that's the side note. But let me give you the, some of the reasons. Here's like five reasons why this is not adoptionism, if you needed more than the obvious reading of the text. Sorry, the beginning of Mark, number one, the beginning of Mark quotes Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Yahweh and relates this to the coming of Jesus. Right? That's what we read last week. It's, the, it's, it's Yahweh who comes. Right? He's the forerunner for Yahweh to come to his temple. And then Jesus shows up. So the implication is that God himself is showing up. Um, number two, John tells us something about Jesus before Jesus' baptism. That's in Mark 1, verse 7 and 8. And what does he say about Jesus? This is before the baptism. Before supposedly he was adopted. Mark 1, 7, and he was, and he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Everything in his context in, in the statement from John the Baptist is future. He will baptize you with the Spirit. He is coming. That's future, right? That's, that's happening next. But when he describes how mighty he is, it's a present statement. He is mightier than me. Not he will be mightier than me. And so he's, it's not like he's a normal man who becomes something later. John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark here, chapter 1, is suggesting that this is already the case with Jesus. If you add the, the Gospel of John to this, in John 1.15 and John 1.30, we get the statement from John the Baptist that Jesus is before him. He's greater than me because he was before me. He's a pre-existent one. And so that also would refute that. Now I'll give you another reason. Um, this isn't the only time. God says that Jesus is his son in Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And keep in mind that Bart Ehrman is saying, 
right? It, Jesus says, this is my beloved son, therefore it means he's becoming his beloved son. Well, in Mark 9, verse 7, we have God saying it again, except this is way later. This is at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is transformed before them in glory, his glory is revealed. I should put it that way. I don't know if the word transform is probably not the proper word. But then in verse 7 of Mark 9, then a cloud formed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Clearly, Jesus is being adopted again. No, this is just, you don't study the, there's only one group of people that study the Bible like this, right? People who are trying to keep themselves from knowing what it means, like what it plainly means in the context of the verses themselves. How is this Mark, how is this that Mark uh, 111 means I'm adopting you, yet the same phrase in Mark 9-7 doesn't mean that? Why? Because nothing about either passage means adoption. God's just declaring who Jesus is. It's the revelation of who Christ is. Not, he's not becoming something different. And then finally, we could just look at the rest of the Bible. We could go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and see the plurality of, of God. We could see the deity of Christ um, in, in the, the angel of the Lord as we're looking at the Old Testament, in the statements about the Messiah indicating his deity, like the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark calling himself the Son of Man, you know, all these, all these things. Um, the point I'll just say is this. Um, don't let Bart Ehrman interpret the Bible for you. The dude's weird when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And he has a lot of information and knowledge, but sometimes being smart just means you're better at weaving error, you know, into something that looks good. I mean, there's like food artists that work for commercial, you know, companies making commercials, and they make things that aren't actually food look like a really good food. Don't eat their food. That's what Bart Ehrman does with error, right? I'll make, make it look really smart and good, but if you were able to slow down and analyze it and think it through, you see the problems with it. Um, so what is the point then of the statement in verse 11, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, or in whom I am well pleased. What is the, the point of this statement? What is the meaning of it? it does, it's not adoptionism. What is it then? Well, this word agapetas, that's the word beloved, you're my beloved son. Agape, you guys hear the word agape in there, right? Agapetas. Um, according, and now here's a great resource for you, netbible.org. I was looking up different Greek resources and they have like pages and pages on this. And I was like, I want to find a quote that just summarizes it. Netbible.org is a great free resource online where you can look at some study notes that talk about Greek and things like that as well. But it's generally pretty accessible if you don't know those languages. Um, so here's what they said. Um, they said the force of agapetas uh, is often pertaining to one who is the only one of his or her class, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. And that's what this word, you're my beloved son. It can, in some translations, they'll put it, you're my only son. Because the word itself is, has that context of you're the only one, but it has that word of beloved as well. And so we don't have an English word that perfectly parallels this. So we have translations handling it differently, which is sometimes why it's good to look at translations. You look at different translations, you realize, oh, sometimes it's not about which one's right. They're each carrying a different flavor of the Greek here, and you're getting more depth of meaning as you do that. So that's the idea here, is that he is the loved and only son of God. You know, none of the prophets in the Old Testament were ever called sons of God. They were never called son of God. None of them. And Jesus comes, and he's the culmination of it all. He is the son of God. Turn to Mark chapter 12, 
And I think we can let Jesus explain what this voice from heaven means. This is the parable of the tenants. And we're going to read uh, verses 6 through 9, just part of this parable, but I'll set it up for you. There's a vineyard owner, according to Jesus, and he leases his vineyard to tenants, and they're going to take care of the vineyard, and they have to give him the proceeds at the end of a given time. And he sends to his tenants other servants of his to collect the proceeds. And they beat one, and they stone one, and they kill one. They reject the servants. And finally, finally, he decides, I'll send them my son. And that's in verse 6, Mark 12, 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. This is my beloved son, in whom I well please. A beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. He's last of all because Jesus comes after the law and the prophets and all those messengers of God, and now the, now the son has arrived. But, verse 7, those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, H-E-I-R, heir, like as an inheritor. This is the one. Uh, Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard as Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Jesus here in Mark is foreshadowing what they're going to do to him, but he's also telling us a lot about who he is and what it means when he comes up. So when he shows up and God says, this is my beloved son, the message is, you better do what he says. You better listen to him. He's the son of God. Jesus is the ultimate representative of God, more so than Moses, more so than than Abraham was, more so than any of the prophets, more so than John the Baptist. Jesus is going to bring a word, a message that people have to listen to. That's what the book of Hebrews does. It it nails on this over and over again. It says, hey, if that word, which is spoken by angels, right? If, If you were stoned, if you rejected that word, how much more if you reject the message from the son of God, right? God in Times past is spoken to through the prophets, but through angels and all these different ways and various methods. But, but now he's spoken to us in the last days by his son. That's the idea here is, yes, God's revelation to mankind, as much as the, the Bible is God's revelation, it leads us to Jesus, who is the ultimate one, who is the judge of the, the heavens and the earth. He's the judge of all. And we'll stand accountable to him for how we respond to the things that he taught and said and did. So you better listen. That's the point. That's the point. It's the identity of Christ, and then consequently, so we better listen to what he has to say. And this is how it's beginning the Gospel of Mark. So do you see how it's elevating what Jesus is going to teach us in this Gospel? And it's foreshadowing what Jesus will do throughout his life. Um, and it relates to Isaiah 42. So if you would, turn to Isaiah 42. This is one of the my servant passages in Isaiah. Isaiah has these my servant passages. The basic idea behind them is that Jesus is uh, pictured as the ultimate servant of God. Um, it's a little bit complicated if you survey through Isaiah. There's different my servant passages. They all relate to Jesus in some fashion or another. And it gets stronger and more clear as the book goes on until you finally get to Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall do wisely. And uh, it talks about the suffering Messiah. But here in Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Notice how in the statement... In Mark 1.11, he says, in whom I'm well pleased. And he says, in, in here in Isaiah 42, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed 
he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. There is so much weight in those, ver- in those words. He's going to bring righteousness, justice, but he's not going to do it through like forceful means. I'm not going to put out the, the, the smoking wick. I'm not going to break the bruised reed. I'm not going to cause any harm. I'm just going to, I'm going to bring justice, righteousness. Now in his second coming, he's going to bring uh, uh, the winnowing fan, so to speak. He's going to come with fire. But initially here, he's coming with grace and kindness. And what I love is the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The earth is going to be listening for his law. And it's described as his law. And here we stand, New Testament believers in the new covenant, and we have the law of Christ. We learn the law of Christ, like it says in Galatians. So the, anyway, there's, we could spend all day on just that, that one section in Isaiah 42. I think it's really neat. We have the law of Christ being brought to us, uh, and we're waiting, the coastlands, and basically those who are non-Jewish peoples are even waiting for his law. So there's a law that even the Gentiles will receive, and it'll be his. It'll be this Messiah. And then it's the same person who's in view in Isaiah 53 being talked about later on. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to go back over briefly, verses 9 through 11. (laughs) Um, And this is is the section of the Bible study that will be side notes. Side notes, things I didn't want to put in elsewhere because I thought it might be a little distracting from the flow of thought we were dealing with. But in verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Um, what's interesting, here's the side note, is this. John was the subject of the, of the sentences. He was the subject in verses 4 through 8. But in verse 9, he is mentioned in the passive voice, and that's kind of how it is from here on out. So John is highlighted, and then as soon as the baton is passed to Jesus, now even John is like not even the subject of the sentence anymore. Right? That's what we get in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and, he, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He's in the passive voice. Jesus is the new subject. So even grammatically, the emphasis of Christ is, is holding in chapter 1 of Mark. Like John said, I must uh, decrease, but he must increase. The next question I have was in verse 10, who sees this? Who's, who sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Christ? Was it the whole crowd who saw it or like who saw it? And the way it's worded in verse 10 is interesting. It says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Who do you think that might be referring to? Yeah, it's it's now uh, probably the majority think this is referring to Jesus. It seems like the shift in language is that Jesus is the emphasis. Um, It could be John. It could be Jesus. I'm not sure. But what happens next is something where God speaks and it's addressed directly to Jesus. Right? You're my beloved son. Okay, that's interesting. So it seems like the focus here is on Jesus and what Jesus is seeing and experiencing while he is being baptized. But that doesn't mean nobody else saw it. It doesn't say Jesus and only Jesus saw this thing. That would be a misunderstanding of the passage. And in fact, in John 1... John, the book of John chapter 1, we find that John saw it too. I read the verse earlier, right? Where he says, I saw the Spirit descending. And that was how I knew that he was the one. Because I saw the Spirit descending and remain upon him. So we know John also saw it. So we know at least Jesus and John saw it. Maybe others saw it as well. We're not being told one way or the other, to be honest. It wasn't just a vision, though. It's described as like a real space-time event. 
The heavens aren't, don't appear to be t- torn open. And the, the, the verb there is interesting. The heavens are torn open. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, <clears throat> but the question I have then is, okay, so if other people saw it, at least John saw it, why in Mark is Jesus the focus? He saw. And then God speaks directly. The Father speaks directly to Jesus. You are my son. So I was just pondering this. Like, what would be the reason? And the only thing I can think of to come up with is that it's about the relationship between the Father and the Son. We're having the Trinity revealed to us here in the beginning of Mark. And it's the focus is Jesus is in perfect relationship with the Father. Of his own merit and worth, he is in perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why I think it's from Jesus' perspective to show us this interrelationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which brings us to the next point, the Trinity. This is a Trinity passage. The baptism of Jesus is a major Trinitarian passage. The Son and the Father and the Spirit are all active here, yet they're not the same person. Or else you have Jesus like, is, is, God, is the Father pantomiming? Is Jesus like, like covering his mouth? Is he throwing his voice up to the skies? You know, like what's going on here? It doesn't make a lot of sense if you believe in something called modalism. Modalism is, it's, this one's, there's a lot of heresies out there, right? This one's easy to remember because it's the idea that God is, there's one God, we agree here, right? That's the good part of it. The bad part of it is that God changes modes and sometimes he's in the father mode and sometimes God is in the spirit mode and sometimes he is in the son mode. And so sometimes modalists, <clears throat> they, will, they will say this and, um, and Mormon theology does this a little bit. But then in other parts of their theology, they make God into three separate gods. So I don't even know what's going on with Mormon teaching on the topic of the Trinity, to be honest. Sometimes it seems like they weren't sure as they were, like the the developers of the doctrines were changing their minds a little bit here and there. In fact, I know that's true because at one point, Joseph Smith affirmed the Trinity and later he denied it. But that's for another night. Um, So what we have, though, is is the idea in modalism that um, frequently that in the Old Testament, we have the Father. In, in the Gospels, we have the Son, and in the book of Acts, we have the Holy Spirit. Except if you actually examine the scriptures, you know this is not the case. Because we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all active in all parts of the Bible. The Old, the New Testament, Gospels, Acts, all throughout, as well as in the book of Revelation. So that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But the problem is that when Christians are not well informed on the doctrine of the Trinity, which can be a challenging doctrine, admittedly, it can be very challenging, and they're pushed with questions from like someone who knocks on your door or a, or a coworker or a friend. Um, they'll ask you questions like, well, does, did God sacrifice himself? And you're like, but I don't understand how. And then in trying to figure out how to answer these questions, Christians often lapse into modalism as an explanation. So my recommendation is don't get into that mode where you, where you lapse into modalism. <clears throat> um, no, here we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're clearly not... God acting in different modes, like he's shifting, like, like, the, like the, the ice, water, steam kind of analogy, which can lead to modalism as well. Um, sometimes this is how the Bible teaches the Trinity. It's not like, okay, let's have a theological moment. Let me explain the doctrine of the Trinity. It's rather, let me, let me show God doing something that doesn't make sense without the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, like you're sort of pushed into it. Where other doctrines, you compare them to this text and you go, yeah, they don't really work. You know, you need a doctrine that works with this text. And that's what happens with the Trinity here. Okay, so let's go to one other side note. I have two more for you. Um, The heavens are torn open. Man, I'm really drawn to that. Torn open? 
torn open. That's in verse 10. He saw the heavens opening, but in, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's a, like very strongly stated in Mark. Torn open. I think it's like the words like schizo. I want to say schizo, but that's probably wrong. Schizane, I think it is. Anyway, I, I don't remember. I didn't write it down. <clears throat> but the point is that he's torn open, that there's like a ripping open of heaven. So what was torn open exactly? Was it the sky? Was it heaven like when we think about, because the sky is called heaven, right? Outer space is called heaven, right? God, wherever God dwells, that's called heaven where the angels come before God and stuff like that. What was torn open? Was it both? Was it the sky was torn and, and heaven, God's like abode, you might call it, was also torn open? But then this leads me to another question. Where is heaven? Because in order for the Holy Spirit to, to come in such a form as this, heaven was torn open. I mean, it feels like Star Trek. Where it's, I mean, it feels like, like wormhole, like kind of thing, you know? And I'm, I know this is probably, that's us probably forcing some of our modern understanding onto these things. But, but the idea is this, that I think, if nothing else, this idea of heaven being torn open and the Holy Spirit descending is that I'm not being taught in the scripture that if I get a powerful enough telescope, I will see heaven meaning God's actual dwelling place, like where the angels are and things like that. It's not like a place where I'll see it, but it is real. We're not saying it's just an allegory. No, 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 no. God's not an allegory. (laughs) The angels aren't allegories. These are real beings. But their locality may not make sense on our understanding of, you know, three-dimensional space. Um, And so I just find this really interesting. And so searching commentary after commentary, I'm like, I want to hear other people comment on this. Torn open. And like, nobody does. Like, I could not find one source that would comment on it so I could feel like I wasn't alone in my, you know, guessing. You know how it is. Like, you, th- you read the scripture and you think, this is really good. I got something good. And then you're like, but I want to read some other Christians who agree with me first to make sure I'm not, you know, going off the deep end. And so I, I am unable to do that checking because I just, at least in my own research, I wasn't able to find people commenting on it. Um, but it's also mentioned in Matthew 3.16 and Luke 3.21 that the heavens were opened. There's an opening happening here. And so we're not looking at, uh, what was it? There was one atheistic astronaut who went up into space and he said, like, I didn't see God up there. It was, what was that? Yeah, I've been all over the heavens, which is ironic too, because when you think about it, it's like Earth is like, what, how big? And you went exactly how far? <laughs> um, but, but, but I think that what we're saying is the locality of the distance from Earth is not the issue. There's a separation between heaven and Earth, but it may not be an issue of distance. Maybe a different, it's a different kind of separation. That's at least my impression. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to find out about it. But that seems to fit the, the teaching here. Finally, I'll just mention this little side note. Jesus was baptized. He was not sprinkled. Um, I don't say this because I emotionally, personally care about methods of baptism, except that I don't know how there's a debate between sprinkling and dunking. I don't understand the debate. The word baptize means immerse. That's just what it means. To sprinkle someone is not to baptize them. Don't get me wrong. Someone can still say, it can come to Christ. And if that's what they did to you, I believe God honors that. And I believe that you're, you can consider yourself, been, having been baptized, you did something representing your faith and trust in Christ, that it was the best you could do at the time. But um, it's clear that this is immersion, water immersion. And if you weren't sure, look at verse 10 again. And when does it say that the heavens were opened? It says immediately, coming up 
out of the water. Remember where he was being baptized? It was a Jordan River, not the Jordan like spritzer bottle. Right? It was a river, and he went into the water, and he was baptized. And so baptism by immersion is the right biblical method. I don't think your baptism saves you, so I don't think it's like people need to be worried about their salvation if things weren't done right. But it's the biblical method. And if anybody's listening to this and you haven't been baptized, um, there is no earthly reason why you should not get baptized right away, like as soon as possible, if you're a follower of Christ. You don't need to wait. You don't need to do a year of new believers' classes. Like, you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you follow Jesus, you get baptized. Like, that's the starting point. Um, the churches who want to bring you through those discipleship classes, I think that's good. I, don't, I just don't see why they don't front load baptism and still do the discipleship with you. You have faith and trust in Christ. The, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, that guy got baptized like he, on the road because there was water right then and there. And so um, I think that biblically baptism should happen right away. That seems to be the reason, uh, the method. <clears throat> okay. Next week, we're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus. And I wanted to do it this week, but I just felt like it was too much to tackle because the temptation of Jesus brings some really interesting theological, Christological questions. Jesus tempted? Satan tempting him? What's going on here? And I'm just excited to get into it um, and deal with some of those questions. And um, yeah, so I hope you guys are enjoying this Gospel of Mark stuff. We'll pick up next week. We will be here. It'll be the normal routine for us. Let's pray, and then we'll do your guys' comments. Father, we thank you for your holy, holy word. We pray um, that just as Jesus came, and I think it seems that um, the crowds didn't understand who he was. They missed it. They saw it, but they missed it in many ways. We pray that we wouldn't miss it, that we would not just read the black and white letters that we see in the Bible, but we'd realize the eternal truths that we're learning about our Lord Jesus Christ who comes to die in our place to fulfill all righteousness, who gives us the Holy Spirit, who is the one whom the the law and the prophets were leading up to, to reveal he is the greater one, he is the holy one, he's, Father, he's your beloved son in whom you are well pleased and in him we can become and do become children of God. We rejoice in Christ. We trust in Christ. And Jesus, um, we're just grateful that you so humbly came and took on our burdens and our needs and our sin that we might know you forever. Forever, Lord, in in your eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.